Now, I was um, even, actually, this is a question I'll ask you at the end of the term. Yeah. Do we need to, um, uh, uh -huh. I know. This is me every morning. Do we need to cite the, the like, Norton anthology? No. Okay. I don't need to cite anything, do we? Well, the, I, I think what Rachel's asking is, do you have to put in some MLA? I'm quoting oh. this from, yeah. I mean, we all know the page numbers are wrong in the Norton Anthology, so it doesn't matter. It would just confuse people if you were to do it. No, that's not this kind of course. Um, this is not that kind of course. Um, there are those kinds of courses, and they're important and good for you, but um, I can't go down that road in grading to start taking you off for not citing correctly. That, that's not the kind of course this is. Um, you should take a course that will take off, that, that will screw up your perfect average and force you to go to um, a less Tony future um, because you didn't cite correctly. You should definitely take that kind of course, but not, this won't be it. Particular plots. Is he, um, is he a citation, um, what's the Nazi. word that, <laughs> that, that was the word I was trying not to use. <laughs> Really? Well, th see, that's really good for you. And, and people like me free ride on the fact that our colleagues will do that so that we don't have to. Okay. Do you know who Leanna Helmsley is? Um, oh, how funny that the cultural references of one generation just disappear for another. Oh, well. Okay. Ask your parents. If you just say to your parents, do you know who Leona Helmsley is, they'll laugh. Um, you can get a laugh out of them just by asking them that question. I can just ask them for tuition money if I want to give them that. Well, that too. <laughs> um, okay, did people read Child Roland? So clearly the same poem as Mont Blanc, which is clearly the same poem as the Intimations Ode, right? No? Okay, we'll have to get there. Um, did you like it? Um, okay, well, let's, let's try to finish up. Who's not laughing? Good. Let's try to finish up uh, Mont Blanc today. That's like saying Leona Helmsley to your parents. Saying finish up the poem to you is kind of gets the same result. Um, partly because I think we did uh, the preliminary work we needed to do, um, which is to see what the struggle is between. Um, in a sense, and this is one of several ways that it's um, like the intimations owed, um, the struggle between the mind and nature. Um, that you get in Mont Blanc is something that Wordsworth is first feeling in the Intimations Ode as simply a loss in the mind. Um, that is to say that nature is still nature. Nature is still glorious, but the mind can't um, apprehend that glory anymore. Um, can't see it anymore. First four stanzas of the Intimations Ode. Um, and then the turn in the Intimations Ode is to start saying something like, well, the glory of nature, um, which I don't see anymore, means somehow that both, we didn't quite put it this way, but now in the context of Mont Blanc, it's worth putting it this way, that somehow um, the glory that I saw and that I now can see no more must have been in me. Um, the fact that I've lost it means that it wasn't nature that was so glorious all by itself, but it was my capacity to perceive that glory that mattered. 
And then kind of canceling terms. Is your hand up, Nick? Yeah. Um, I don't actually. Um, that's it, Dan. Rob. Oh. Thank you so much. So the if what Wordsworth does in a sense is cancel terms. That is to say, if nature once looked glorious and is now gone, and that glory is now gone. Um, it's because I no longer perceive in my own mind something is lacking. What, I, what was once a perceptual power in my mind is now gone. First four stanzas, how sad. But then, but if that perceptual power is gone, it must be that the glory of the world comes from the mind since the fact that you can take the perceptual power away from the mind takes the glory away from the world, it must be that that perceptual power is itself in the mind and not part of the world. And if it's in the mind, then it's the mind which is the master of nature rather than nature being the master of the mind. Nature just becomes a homely nurse, a foster mother. Um, but it's the mind and the origin of the mind that really matters. So that struggle between mind and nature, Wordsworth doesn't make it explicit. Um, he sometimes makes it semi-explicit. He may not have ever quite thought of it explicitly. Um, but the struggle between the mind and nature um, is there in Wordsworth as well. Um, I don't know if any of you decided to write on Tintern Abbey, but one of the um, lines in Tintern Abbey that Shelley is echoing in Mont Blanc is Wordsworth describes um, the things that we see in, in nature are the, the things that humans see in nature, both what they half create and what perceive. So we perceive things, but we also half create, half create the things we perceive. Um, and the word half there is important. It suggests um, a kind of compromise or a kind of merger of the mind and the world. But it still sees how much we create through the mind, through the way we see the very thing that we're seeing. So here we have Shelley looking at Mont Blanc and thinking that there's a remoter world much as Wordsworth says, well, we come from another world. Trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. Um, nature is but a sleep and a forgetting. So this world isn't that other world, says Wordsworth. Now Shelley is saying, some say the gleams of a remoter world visit the soul in sleep. The death is slumber. Um, and then he looks at Mont Blanc, which looks like an image of that remoter world, except that it pierces through even the infinite sky. So he's trying again in stanza three to make Mont Blanc an image of something rather than the thing itself, which the mind is trying to image. So that's another way of putting what we've been putting. If he can make Mont Blanc an image of something else, make Mont Blanc the vehicle and the human mind the tenor, then the human mind is master. But 
if Mont Blanc resists being the vehicle, won't simply be used for something else. If the mountain won't come to Shelley, then Shelley somehow has to go to the mountain. So he looks at it, he thinks of it as, the, as an image of the mightier world of sleep, but then he thinks, no, it's really there. And what happens to the spirit? The very spirit fails, driven like a homeless cloud from steep to steep. This is back again to line 58. That vanishes among the viewless gales. Far, far above piercing the infinite sky, Mont Blanc appears still snowy and serene. Its subject mountains, their unearthly forms, pile around it, ice and rock, broad veils between of frozen floods, unfathomable deeps, blue as the overhanging heaven that spread and wind among the accumulated steeps, a desert peopled by the storms alone. Save when the eagle brings some hunter's bone and the wolf tracks are there, how hideously its shapes are heaped around, rude, bare, and high, ghastly, and scarred, and riven. Is this the scene where the old earthquake demon taught her young ruin? Were these their toys? Or did a sea of fire envelop once this silent snow? None can reply. All seems eternal now. The wilderness has a mysterious tongue which teaches awful doubt. That is, we know nothing. The mind is nothing. Or faith so mild, so solemn, so serene that man may be, but for such faith, only needing such faith, with nature reconciled. Thou hast a voice, great mountain, to repeal large codes of fraud and woe, not understood by all but which the wise and great and good interpreter make felt or deeply feel. So now it's almost as though he says, okay, this mountain can be its own great self, but we can learn from that. We can be reconciled with that. The greatness of the mountain, its serenity, its distance, its difference, its um, no longer being a place of violence, even if violence was once there, a sea of fire or the earthquake demon. All of that can show us how to live under the shadow of the mountain. And so maybe there is some reconciliation. Now, if human political life, um, Shelley, as I mentioned before, was a political radical, um, some reconciliation of human political life, of human freedom and human peace with um, the mountain and its own serenity in the universe. So he starts, you could say, and for the best reasons, for absolutely good reasons, it's almost as though he tries to make the mountain a vehicle through the back door. The very fact that it's not a vehicle, that it's just there, allows us an idea of what it means to be just there, instead of constantly competing to destroy each other. That would be the political valence or political dimension or parameter of the poem, yeah. I mean, for an atheist, he, uh, he gets sort of the, the Judeo-Christian sense of being in the presence of God better than most Jews and Christians. Yeah, yeah. Get, uh, like, what he's that's what he's describing, something like, you know, yeah. just being on Mount Karnak or something like that. Right, exactly. <clears throat> um, but not believing in God. Yeah. Yeah, good. That's really good.
Yeah. Um, what I got when I started, when I was reading this, like especially from sixty on, was Mont Blanc in this seems almost to be like the antithesis of the cliff in the boat scene. Mm-hmm. Of, nice. Instead of a kind of like a giant sort of scaring away mountain, like this kind of almost like Ben said, divine presence, which even you know the the references to the the earthquake demons evoke kind of like mystery and you know, invite exploration, and that, and I don't know, it harkened me back to that. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, remember, Shelley didn't know that that scene in Wordsworth, right. um, but I think it's it's um, not... Why not? Because Wordsworth, the prelude, Wordsworth never called it the prelude, he called it um, the, the um, poem on my own mind. And what it was supposed to be was the introduction to his endless philosophical work called The Recluse, of which, thank God, he only published one part, um, part one of three, um, and then kind of spent the rest of his life thinking he would finish it and didn't finish. Um, and it, the part that, that he published was the part that Mary Shelley, that Percy and Mary Shelley read in a gondola in Venice, and Mary Shelley just wrote in her notebook, he has become a slave. Um, but so he wrote the prelude where he was going to basically write a poem about the poet who was going to say the philosophical things he was saying about human society and the world. Um, but he didn't publish it because it was going to be just one part of a much longer work. Um, but it was found, I mean, people knew it existed. He kept tinkering with it all his life. And um, it was published after his death. Um, just to the extent that you're interested in this, and there are. Um, I think I'm teaching Romanticism next year, and I don't know whether Laura is or not, um, but you should take a Romanticism course if you are interested in this. Um, the Prelude was published in 1850, and Wordsworth had tinkered with it um, into his 70s. Um, in the 1930s, that is 80 years later, um, over 80 years later, people found or decided to publish the um, first version of the prelude, I mean, first is a hard word to say, but um, a version of the prelude public, that he didn't publish, but that he wrote, that he finished in 1805. So 1805 is Intimations Ode time. 1850 is Ecclesiastical Sonnets, Punishment of Death time. Um, the 1850 prelude is a great poem, but the 1805 prelude is a much greater one. Um, all the, most of the tinkering was tinkering, was tinkering for the worse. Um, making it a more orthodox and a less radical poem. Um, so the 1805 prelude, if you only read the prelude once, which God forbid you should only read once, you should read it yearly, really. But if you only read it once, read the 1805 prelude. Um, and um, so, but the boat stealing scene and so on, all of that's finished by 1805. Um, however, he published little bits of it, like maybe a total of 150 lines of this um, something like 10,000 line poem um, as little separate poems during his lifetime, um, but mostly uh, Shelley hadn't read it. Byron may have read some of it because Byron um, uh, knew Coleridge and was actually helping Coleridge publish some of his work, um, but Shelley didn't read any of it. Um, but you're right to compare it to that. Um, I would also remember a line from the Invocation of Book Three of Paradise Lost where Milton describes how for the book of knowledge fair he is presented with a universal 
Blanc. And Mont Blanc means, everyone knows what the, what the name of the mountain means? It's a New Hampshireian name? White Mountain. White Mountain, yeah. It's Mount White um, because it's covered with snow all the time. Um, so the word blank and the word blanc in French, um, white, they essentially mean the same thing. Um, a blank sheet of paper, a white sheet of paper, blankness, whiteness. So when Milton says that for the Book of Knowledge Fair, he's presented with a universal blank of nature's works to him expunged and raised, um, the idea that nature would be a blank for him um, is on Shelley's mind. Um, this mountain is in one sense overwhelming and in the same sense overwhelming because of its blankness, its refusal to become humanly meaningful. So the blankness of the mountain and the blankness of nature for Milton those things are not unrelated to each other. Again, that will seem to you like a stretch, but it isn't. If you trace the, if you trace the use of the word blank from Milton onwards, um, what happens is people are obsessed, a lot of poets are obsessed with the way Milton uses the word blank there, presented with a universal blank. It is such a bleakly blank word, or a blankly bleak word. Um, that um, a lot of poets got obsessed with that. Um, Wordsworth in particular, who talks about a sense of blank misgiving, call it solitude. So it's a word that resonated for people. Um, it's a word that Shelley, um, that everyone knows comes from Milton, um, but it's a word that people are using in their poems because it's such a good word you could say that Milton discovered, um, discovered the power of. So when Shelley writes a poem called Mont Blanc, um, there's one other thing you should know. This is sort of literary history which, which um, should always, can always be used as supporting evidence but it's not the meaning of a poem. But Coleridge wrote a poem um, called To Mont Blanc is it? It might have been called Him Before Sunrise in the Vale of Chamonix. No, I think that was its actual title, Him Before Sunrise in the Vale of Chamonix, but it was a poem to Mont Blanc. Um, and he talks about, Thou bald, awful head, O sovereign Blanc, or O sovereign Blanc. Um, in fact, Coleridge had never seen Mont Blanc when he wrote the poem. Um, he'd seen a mountain in Wales, and he decided it would be better to make this about Mont Blanc. Um, but the description of Mont Blanc is kind of, in fact, a description of Wordsworth with his bald, awful head. Um, and um, it's, it's almost a joke, but not quite, um, that Coleridge, who, who felt overawed by Wordsworth, is writing a poem to Wordsworth where he turns Wordsworth into a mountain. Um, for good and for bad reasons. The good reason is, well, Wordsworth was a mountain. The bad reason is, plus, you know, he's only a mountain. I'm a human being. Um, so Shelley knew that poem. And um, that's another just filiation to make um, with, with um, 
the history of poetry as well as the site of the mountain. The mountain is absolutely number one important thing in this poem. Um, but thinking about the mountain, how he thinks about it, is influenced by how Wordsworth thinks about similar things and how Coleridge thinks about similar things and how Milton thought about similar things. So I'm not so for Coleridge, the mountain really just is Wordsworth. And that's why Coleridge's poem is just not a good poem. It's an okay poem. It's just not a good so poem. Those, that first line you said just sounds terrible. Oh, yeah, it is that it is kind of a terrible line. Um, for Shelley the mountain really is absolutely powerfully, um, overwhelmingly the mountain. But his thoughts about it are influenced by other poetry that he's read. So now we get this idea of the mountain, as, as you say, as a kind of impersonal um, presence, not even a god, um, but present like a god. And um, that can repeal large codes of fraud and woe. Not understood by all, that is the mountain's voice isn't understood by all, but which the wise and great and good interpret or make felt or deeply feel. So at least they deeply feel it. And so now he talks about human, the human world, the fields, the lakes, the forests, and the stream, meadow, grove, and stream, the earth, every common sight, ocean, and all the living things that dwell within the daedal earth, the footnote will tell you that's um, an adjective from Daedalus, um, the intricate inventor. Um, lightning and rain, earthquake and fiery flood and hurricane, the torpor of the year when feeble dreams visit the hidden buds or dreamless sleep holds every future leaf and flower. The bound with which from that detested trance they leap, the works and ways of man, their death and birth, and that of him of man and all that his may be, all things that move and breathe with toil and sound, all these things are born and die, revolve, subside, and swell. So here he says, let's look at the world of humanity, the world, the familiar world, the world of things that grow and die, the world of life, the world where there are living things, which the voice of the mountain can help reconcile to each other and to reality. So there's this long list of living things. Remember, he's given the list of mountainous things at the beginning of stanza two. <coughs> now, remember the beginning of stanza two, thus thou ravine of Arv, thou great ravine, and then he just describes over and over again, can't get away from the description of the mountain. Now he tries, tries to pile up a description of the natural world. And then he says, all those things are born and die, revolve, subside, and swell. Power dwells apart in its tranquility, remote, serene, and inaccessible. So now what he's doing is he's paraphrasing what he said in, at the end of stanza three. But he's going back to the mountain, and he's saying power, the power of the universe, dwells apart in its tranquility, remote, serene, and inaccessible. And this, this fact, the naked countenance of earth on which I gaze, even these primeval mountains teach the adverting mind. So if I look at these mountains, look at Mont Blanc, 
I understand how power dwells apart from all that lives and dies. For example, look at the glaciers. They creep like snakes that watch their prey from their far fountains, slow rolling on. There, many a precipice, frost, and the sun, in scorn of mortal power, have piled dome, pyramid, and pinnacle, a city of death, distinct with many a tower and wall impregnable of st I'm just reading. I read, you decide. <laughs> the Fox News of poetry. <laughs> there many oppressive as frost and sun in scorn of mortal power of piled dome, pyramid, and pinnacle, a city of death, distinct with many a tower and wall impregnable of beaming ice. So what's happening yet again? Isabel. Sorry? He's becoming overwhelmed. He's be yeah. He's trying to look at the mountain and just describe it um, as a useful image for what he wants to say, which is that we can learn to be serene and live together. Um, and then the mountain takes over yet again. Every time he looks at it, it becomes completely fascinating to him. And the description becomes even more sublime. The glaciers creep like snakes that watch their prey, a little bit scary, from their far fountains, slow rolling on. Just think of the image of the fountain of a glacier, a glacier coming out of a fountain. It's all this incredible slow motion. Um, they are many oppressive as frost and the sun, and scorn of mortal power of piled. Dome, pyramid, and pinnacle, a city of death. That is, dome, pyramid, and pinnacle of ice, a city of death distinct with many a tower and wall impregnable of beaming ice, yet not a city but a flood of ruin is there that from the boundaries of the sky rolls its perpetual stream. Um, so what word do you want to notice in that half line, line 109? Boundaries. Sorry? Boundaries. Um, okay, so yeah, boundaries and... Um, boundaries is 108, but 109? Rolls. Rolls, yeah. We're back where we started, right? The everlasting universe of things flows through the mind and rolls its rapid waves. Now we have again the, um, per the perpetual stream rolling. A flood of ruin is there that from the boundaries of the sky rolls its perpetual stream. So this is not at all the mind dissolving the world. This is the world indifferent to the human mind, scorn of mortal power, rolling its perpetual stream. Vast pines are strewing its destined path, or in the mangled soil branchless and shattered stand. The rocks drawn down from yon remotest waste have overthrown the limits of the dead and living world. So what, what is happening, just so you know, is um, in 1816, in 1817, if you went to visit Mont Blanc, what you would see are, were vast regions of pines that had been um, um, knocked down by the advancing glaciers. The idea of advancing glaciers is so remote to us now, um, since in, in an age of global warming, 
they are retreating very, very quickly. Um, but the great fear in 1817 was actually of a possibly coming ice age because glaciers all over the world were advancing. Um, and in Mont Blanc, you could see the evidence. That is, that there were trees that were now covered, knocked down and covered with ice. And every year the glacier went further. Um, and Shelley was wondering how far it would go, but the limits of the dead and living world. Now, literally, the mountain was taking over from the human. Yeah. Was it the, the end of the fourth stanza reminds me a lot of uh, Kublai Khan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, why? The image, uh, the vast caves shine in the Russian mm-hmm. its restless gleam, the idea of, like, the... I mean, part of yeah. the poem is, like, these underground right. caves beneath right. the glacial... Yeah, those sunny domes, those caves of ice, exactly. Yeah, he's probably thinking of that... I'm trying to remember when Kublai Khan was published. Um, it was about the same time, but he might have seen it earlier. But yeah, he, he may well be thinking of that. That's that's those sunny domes, that cave of ice. So vast pines are strewing its destined path. You can see where the glacier is coming, its destined path. Or in the mangled soil, branchless and shattered stand, the rocks drawn down from yon remotest waste, have overthrown the limits of the dead and living world, never to be reclaimed. The dwelling place of insects, beasts, and birds becomes its spoil. Their food and their retreat forever gone. So much of life and joy is lost. So he starts out with an image of the natural world. Everything that is born and dies, revolves, subsides, and swells. But now, no, the ice is destroying all of that so that it's forever lost. So much of life and joy is lost. The race of man flies far in dread. His work and dwelling vanish like smoke before the tempests stream and their place is not known. Below, vast caves shine in the rushing torrent's restless gleam, which from those secret chasms in tumult welling meet in the vale. And one majestic river the breath and blood of distant lands forever rolls its loud waters to the ocean waves, breathes its soft vapors to the circling air. So the river comes from the mountain. It's what supplies distant lands with irrigation, with water, with, with fertility, the breath and blood of distant lands. But here, it's still near the sources of its destructiveness, and who knows how far that will go. Still, he tries to think, to turn away again and think about distant lands. And then what does he do at the beginning of stanza five? He looks back at the mountain. Mont Blanc yet gleams on high. Here I am, here I've been writing 126 lines of poetry, and what's the mountain been doing all this time? Indifferently gleaming on high, as it always does. Mont Blanc yet gleams on high. The power is there the still and solemn power of many sights and many sounds and much of life and death. And now what he's going to try to do is to take the fact that the mountain is just gleaming there, that all the energy and excitement and, and um, uh, f- torment and ferment of the poem have made no difference whatever to the mountain to try to make the mountain an image of some kind of utter peace or serenity or tranquility. 
Mont Blanc yet gleams on high. The power is there, the still and solemn power of many sights and many sounds and much of life and death. And now what you're going to get is something, I think, quite amazing in this description. So I pause for a parenthesis, which is to say that a lot of what people think about in romantic poetry is that it's a poetry of description that what you get in romantic poetry is, are just very long descriptions, spectacular descriptions often, but very long descriptions of nature. Um, and the question of why there is description in literary work in general um, is an old and actually an interesting one. Um, that is, we could say that literature is, in some deep sense, about um, plots, stories, or about characters, or about the relation of characters to their stories. Stories might be the relation of characters to each other. Um, characters might be the thing that stories can make visible. Um, the thing that doesn't seem, it doesn't seem that literature is deeply about is description. Description always seems in the service of something else. Um, Description might be what painting is about, but it doesn't really seem to be what literature is about. And yet, there's so much of it. There's so much description in literature. And um, often, you know, if you're reading a novel, the part that you will be tempted to skim is the description. Um, if something really exciting is going on, but then we get a description of the landscape that this exciting thing is going on in. Um, that's the part that you read quickly, um, especially if it's exciting. Or that's the part that can be very vexing if you force yourself to read every word, if you're, uh, if you're a little bit obsessive about making sure to read every word. Because you want to know what's going on, but you have to read about these caves of ice and these sunny domes and, and um, these plants growing by the salt margin of the flood and so on. Um, and yet description goes way back, um, very famously, for example, to the description of Achilles' shield in the Iliad, which goes on for several, several hundred lines. We get a description of his new shield. It's the middle of war. And what do we get? His shield. Described. It's a very pretty shield. Sorry? It's a very pretty it's shield. It's a very pretty shield. But why now is the question we can ask. Um, in a sense, though, description, when well done, as in the Iliad, um, as in the Romantic poets, is not extraneous. It's not ornamental. Um, the least we can say about description in any decent work of literature is that it affects the pacing of a work. Um, if you, it's a way of slowing something down um, when the writer wants to alter or um, affect the pacing. But in Romanticism, description in Shelley and in Wordsworth, and in the Romantic poets in general, description is always a kind of um, struggle might be too strong a word, but always a kind of bid for, under, for, for the terms of understanding of something, the terms by which something will be understood. So what we get in stanza five here is a different description of the mountain. The description we've gotten in the first four stanzas has been the description from a human point of view. That is, I look at Mont Blanc 
I see it, I seem to be gazing in my own, my separate fantasy, I see it piercing the infinite sky, I turn around, but then I turn back, and there it is, and it's destroying these pines, and so on. I ask questions about it, is this where the earthquake demon taught her young ruin? Um, but this is all from a particular perspective, the perspective of the human being looking at the mountain and overwhelmed by it. Finally, in stanza five, he tries to give up. He does give up. The description gives up a human perspective. And he describes the mountain as no human has ever seen it. It's like describing the dark side of the moon before a rocket ever went there. Um, he says, okay, it's there. And here's what it is, not from a human point of view, but from its own point of view, from a view from nowhere, to quote the title of a book, Philosophy, um, which says that philosophy should try to tell you what things look like, not when viewed from any particular point of view, but when viewed from nowhere. That's what we get here, a kind of view from nowhere. Mont Blanc yet gleams on high, the power is there, the still and solemn power of many sights and many sounds and much of life and death. In the calm darkness of the moonless nights, in the lone glare of day, the snows descend upon that mountain. None beholds them there. So this isn't snow for human beings. It's not snow for human beings to see. It's something that happens in the absence of human beings. This has nothing to do with humans. In a way, this is the most beautiful description of the mountain, and also the mountain, oh, and also the description in which the mountain has no relation to humans whatever. It's wrong to relate this mountain to human concerns, is what this suggests. If you don't relate it to human concerns, just look at this description. The snows descend upon that mountain. None beholds them there, nor when the flakes burn in the sinking sun or the star beams dart through them. So it's just the play of snow and light and the mountain with no human contact, no human presence, whatever. Winds contend silently there and heap the snow with breath, rapid and strong, but silently. Its home, the voiceless lightning in these solitudes, keeps innocently and like vapor broods over the snow. So why silently? Why voiceless? And why, most amazingly, innocently? But why silently? Why voicelessly? Yeah, Maya. It's like the tree falling in the forest. Uh-huh. Yeah. Who's not there to hear it? Anyone. Yeah. It's silent as a way. I mean, this is almost cinematic. Um, you can imagine a kind of cinematic moment where we would go into um, a sudden helicopter shot, but we wouldn't know that. We would just see this incredible landscape from a point of view which was not the human point of view. Um, and you wouldn't be, and, and you would get that sense of transcendence by the fact that you wouldn't have a soundtrack to it, that you would just get this silence. 
Um, of course, it's not cinematic, but it, but the, but um, there is a cinematic effect, which is just like this. So it's just all happening silently. Um, yeah. Oh, your hands up. Um, it's home. Amazing word there. It's home. The voiceless lightning in these solitudes keeps innocently. Why innocently? What do you make of that word? Yeah. I mean, if there's no one there, then lightning wouldn't hurt anyone, so it's kind of innocent in that way. Okay, yeah, good, yeah. It, what it brings to mind for me is Shelley has this odd habit of using all this kind of religious uh, terminology and imagery for someone who's an atheist, like in a couple lines, there's... Um, as the infinite dome of heaven is as law and innocent when he says innocent it sort of makes me think of the religious terminology as in someone who's sort of like an innocent an acolyte of God uh-huh. which I don't know makes me feel like he's sort of describing it as beholden to a higher power whether that be God or not huh um Literally, innocent means um, not noxious, not doing anything um, harmful. Uh, that's the literal meaning of innocent. Um, no carry means to harm in Latin. Um, so those who are acolytes of God are presumably doing no harm. Yeah. The way I thought of it was almost like human, the human gaze, the human like perspective on the mountain is sullying somehow. Somehow it okay. dirty it dirties its holiness. Okay. If you want to call it that. By well, being watched. So in this in, for the in this point of view where no one is watching it, it's all alone. It's innocent. Because okay. it, it's not being dirty by, by human presence. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah. I suppose I suppose the mountain doesn't have any kind of a human type of intention Yeah. Yeah. Um, we could say, I mean, I think it's an amazing word, um, maybe for the reasons you're saying. But I, I do think it's an amazing word. And I think that um, it's something like, certainly one antonym for, to innocently here would be threateningly. Um, that is threatening harm. Um, he's seen the mountain as a threat up to this point. The mountain, I, it's a contest who is to be master. But it turns out, who's not part of that contest? The mountain. The mountain. It's not in a contest to see who's to be master. What it's doing, it's doing. It's just the sublime play of nature. Nature simply doing this stuff not teaching her young ruin, not being destructive, but simply being in the most sublime way possible. What you could say is that there's a kind of reconciliation here of something which is almost never reconciled in um, 
aesthetic theory, a reconciliation of the sublime and the beautiful. Um, we haven't talked about that, and we may get a chance to talk about it or not, but the general um, distinction is there are two really powerful aesthetic responses we can have to nature, um, and sometimes to artworks. Um, and one is to feel that something is sublime, and the other is to feel that something is beautiful. They will sometimes get confused in popular discourse. That is, it's clear that you don't say of a flower, oh, it's sublime. Um, a, the sublime is what blows you away. What you would say of a flower is, oh, it's beautiful. Um, the Grand Canyon or Mont Blanc, they're sublime. Some people will say, God, that's beautiful. But the key word there is God, not beautiful. Um, because the Grand Canyon isn't beautiful. Um, if you were to show someone a photo of the Grand Canyon and they didn't know it was a canyon, they just saw it as a design, you know, they didn't know the scale, no one would think it was beautiful. They'd think that's a really kind of strange design. Um, what makes it aesthetically powerful is its tremendousness, its overwhelmingness, not its beauty. So that distinction between the sublime and the beautiful um, is a deep, deep one. Um, but here it's as though Shelley's reconciling them. He's been saying throughout that the mountain is sublime. Now he's saying that sublimity is beautiful. That's a hard reconciliation, but I think a word like innocently helps make it. And like vapor broods over the snow, the secret strength of things which governs thought and to the infinite dome of heaven is as a law inhabits thee. And then the amazing turn of that last rhetorical question, and what were thou? You see the word there is a subjunctive. Um, we would say in modern colloquial English, what would you be? And what were thou? What would you be? What were thou? And earth, and stars, and sea. If to the human mind's imaginings, silence and solitude were vacancy. So what's the answer to that rhetorical question? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. You'd be nothing. Doesn't matter. You wouldn't care that you were nothing, but you would be nothing if the human mind didn't imagine you the way I've been imagining you in this poem, the way others imagine you. You're just a mountain, some snow, some ice. But to the human mind's imagining, you're this unutterably sublime and also unutterably beautiful thing. Justin. I was going to say that it's kind of amazing that, you know, Shelley caught all this flack for being an atheist, and this poem is, in a way, the greatest argument I've ever read for spirituality. Yeah. Well, he, oh, he thought the human spirit was absolutely there. Yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah. All right. So um, reread Child Roland for um, Wednesday. And that's our task this week, is to get to the Dark Tower.